of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, TV and filmmakers, uh, producers, writers, directors, composers, sound editors, sound mixers, video editors, um, costume designers, production designers, you name it, and we dive into it. Uh, and today we're doing a lot of a lot of fun diving with uh, some some very special guests today. Uh, one of whom is taking his shot at uh, slaying the indie film world at Dances with Films this Friday on uh, what day is the film premiering? On August twenty eighth next week. Uh, writer, director, and actor Ryan Barton Grimley is joining us. Hopefully in a few minutes. Uh, and Ryan is going to talk about his latest film, Hawk and Rev, Vampire Slayers. The film is opening as part of the midnight feature, opening the Dances with Films Film Festival next Friday on August 28th. It's also closing the festival uh, at the midnight screening as well on September the 5th. Uh, so... Dances with Films, like so many other film festivals, has moved into the virtual world uh, in order for the festival to proceed. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. DWF, I think, is uh, you actually have to buy the ticket for a specific show. Unlike some festivals you've heard about earlier, Michelle Remsen talked about a festival that her film Toss It was in a couple months ago where it was just a continual festival and you could just log in at any time and watch any film. Dances with Films, it's going to be very specific. The times you'll buy a ticket, it'll be for a specific screening time for that film, and then it'll give you all the directions on how you access that. But I'm very excited to talk to Ryan about Hawk and Rev Vampire Slayers. Anybody that knows me that has uh, read my reviews and interviews over the past 34 years knows I'm a huge fan uh, of vampires of all types, going all the way back to Nosferatu. And of course, who who doesn't love Buffy? Um, the one of the greatest vampire slayers and Angel, one of the one of the greatest vampires. Um, so if you're uh, by the way, if you're watching on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook live stream feed, because Big Boss Nick likes to play with things like this and use what is it, Pam Mevo, Mevo, okay, Mevo. Um, you'll see uh, it's a smaller tablescape today, but you will see my vintage. Uh, my vintage uh, Buffy season seven collection and Angel season five collection, along with a couple other literary pieces out here. I mentioned it the past couple weeks. Last week you heard from screenwriter Carolyn Goodall, The Bay of Silence. Um, I, I had ordered the book after seeing the film because I was so engrossed with the film and her script design. I then ordered the book. The book came. I am more than halfway through the book. 
it is as riveting as the film and it's very it's fascinating to see her adaptation in light of the structure of the book i can't if you can find a copy of the bay of silence get it and read it and another fun book we have out here is of all the gin joints stories about old hollywood in bars and some of their favorite drinks um and that's that's a really fun one but after Ryan today, we have Emmy nominee, Nina Erb, editor of Insecure, the HBO hit Insecure, joining us at the midpoint of the show. She already has one Emmy to her credit uh, for Green, Project Greenlight a few, year, a few years ago. She is now nominated again, this time outstanding single camera picture editing for a comedy series for... Insecure and the episode Low Key Trying. So very excited. And that particular episode happens to have been directed by Kerry Washington. So it's going to be a lot of fun talking to Nina. But first, without any further ado, the man who's here to slay us, Ryan Barton Grimley. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, how are you? Thanks so much for having me. I am thrilled to have you. Anyone that does anything vampire, I have to talk to. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. Uh, I love it. A cause dear to my heart. (laughs) And I have to say, Hawk and Rev Vampire Slayers, it is tons of fun. It is so much fun from beginning to end. And you, as Vampire Slayer Hawk, are a scream. (laughs) You are a scream. Um, I want to see you and Buffy go head to head. I want to see Hawk and Buffy in a slaying competition. That's all I can say. Uh, I am so in. I'm so in. (laughs) I, yes, I love the movie and the show. I'm in. (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, because, and of course, uh, but I have to ask you, have you worked out the glitch in your in the screening screener as yet for the yes, festival finally yes. yay you know folks yay. You, folks you don't you don't unless you have submitted to film festivals and any filmmaker who's got to get stuff into distributors and all will appreciate this the trials and tribulations you have to go through for specificity um, to get things done and then to get your color correct and get your sound and get everything finished for that final cut copy. And I know Ryan has been laboring and agonizing over this, probably to the point you wanted to pull it. You know, you probably <laughs> wanted to take that stake and just stake it right into the computer, into the editing system. Uh, well, I am so glad. Oh, yeah. That, I'm so glad that you got that worked out. So that next week on the 28th, everybody who buys tickets to see this film for Dances with Films, will they'll be in for a real treat at midnight. Absolutely. And, and, and it will actually look the way it was intended, which is, uh, you know, fresh and warm and bloody. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, the link you sent me that I watched, it looks yeah. beautiful. It really looks. Oh, thank you. It looks beautiful, Ryan. The production values are crisp. The visuals are sharp. The color saturation is terrific. Um, I've got to say, I absolutely love some of what your cinematographer Sean Ayers did. Um, awesome. 
and awesome. I appreciate his work so much. Oh, well, you've worked with him before, so there's there's a reason you go back to somebody, and that's because the collaboration was good and their work was good. Um, said, Absolutely, that that guy is like a he's a one man army. I mean, he he can do wonders. It's just amazing. But you have this film. What makes it so much fun? Not, it, it looks good, so you want to watch it. Um, but then you implement it's your color, your VFX, your time lapse. You've got so, such fun stuff here, and that's before we even get into the script and all the pop culture references of the '80s. And oh my God, what you do to poor George Clooney! Ah. <laughs> uh, Poor George. Oh, that's awesome. Poor George. Ari Schneider delivers that so perfectly, succinctly, just perfect. You know, oh. <laughs> give our listeners a, a summary of Hawk and Rev Vampire Slayers and tell them who Hawk and Rev actually are that leads them to vampire slaying. Okay, happily. So... Uh, Hawk and Red Vampire Slayers is a story about a veteran who, um, you know, encountered a real vampire in the service and tried to bludgeon him with a two-by-four to protect himself and uh, got kicked out of the service. So now he's working as a graveyard uh, night shift security guard and, of course, more supernatural creatures, vampires again, show up at his place of work. And he's, he's uh, you know, he's called Wolf many times. So uh, the local sheriff has heard from him a million times. So he doesn't believe him. And the only person who does believe him and wants to help save their little hometown, their fictional hometown of Santa Muerte, California... <laughs> Just kind of like a Saint Death, you know, a desert beach town. <laughs> um, <laughs> the only one who will actually try to try to help him and first doesn't believe him is his coworker, Revson Rev McCabe. So this is a very special uh, character. Uh, he's a groundskeeper at a at an old warehouse that basically doesn't have any grounds to keep. And and he, this is what Hawk witnesses, and agrees to go on this journey with him to to capture the vampires, not stake or kill the vampires because he is a vegan pacifist, and Hawk is a military man. He's aggressive, bombastic, you know. He's almost like a football coach or something like that, and um, you know he's he's stuck in a very 80s hero mentality of like uh, Jack in Big Trouble in Little China or, uh, you know, John McClane in Die Hard. He, he, he's seen all these movies. He kind of fantasizes that he is the same kind of character and that he's got to save the world. And, of course, that comes into serious conflict with Rev because Rev is a vegan pacifist. <laughs> And He's trying to help him work on his anger management issues. And of course, some of the on this journey, and uh, and they, you know, they get a mentor. They find a love interest for Hawk, uh, who ends up actually saving the day. 
So Ari Schneider plays uh, Rev opposite me. Uh, Ari is an incredibly talented actor, musician, and producer, and writer. Um, he's also my brother-in-law. Okay. I played opposite with him in other movies and also uh, as part of an improv team back in the day. And um, he kind of a perfect foil to Hawk's really aggressive, pumped-up energy. No, oh, the, the you know, two of they, you. They end up going on a long journey. Well, the two of you, Hawk and Rev, very much a yin, uh, yin yang, very much yin yang. Correct. And the two of you do play so well off of each other, um, especially since Hawk is really not what I'd call the sharpest tool in the shed. <laughs> um. Yeah, everything goes over his head. Everything <laughs> goes. Literally everything. Everything. And this is a grown man that his parents have kicked him out of the house. And so where does he live? In a tent in the backyard. Um, yeah. It's, it, he is one of the most hapless people you could ever hope to find, which just endears this character to you as you watch him. Because well, I appreciate that. Because Hawk comes across as so inept, but with a good heart, uh, and he's just—he's hell bent and determined. He's going to rid Santa Muerte of vampires, and he knows they're everywhere. He just knows this. Oh, and oh yeah, he knows it. it come hell, come high water. <laughs> he knows, and everyone he sees is suspect. And the way you play this out with performance is so beautiful and you bring Jana Savage in the mix as the She's amazing the third amazing the actress. third time in the triumvirate here and she blends yeah. really well with the two of you with uh, really well with you and Ari um and she's the brains of the operation clearly yes yeah, she, she's the brains and ends up being the, the courage <laughs> at the end of the day <laughs> Uh, because, you know, like all great characters, Hawk is undone by all of his faults by the end of the movie and can't actually step up to the plate. You know, how did you and go... And Jana, uh, I mean, she's an amazingly talented screenwriter. This this woman has a career most people dream of. And, but I always, you know, really loved acting and done stuff. And, and she, I just thought she was so perfect. There's that natural kind of dry humor. Mm-hmm. Yes, and off the cuff vibe, and and it's perfect as as kind of a balance between you know my aggression and Rev's kind of spaciness. Mm-hmm. She just sort of centered it all. Yeah, I mean it's it works so beautifully, but I'm and she's real, like like she's not like a you know one of the things I love is casting people who look like real people you mm-hmm. might live near or sure. know, as opposed to people who are. I don't know, all look like 90s Baywatch models. It's, it's so, like, and, and that to me is sexy, and that's what I want to see, you know? Well, you know, I've got to ask you, how do you, when you sat down and you wrote this, what, how did you decide and how, what was your approach to bringing the words on the page to life on the screen? Because, as I mentioned, you've got, a lot of VFX in here. You've, you're utilizing the tools in the toolbox in, in terms of oh, yeah. your, your color saturation, time lapse, uh, what Sean is doing with the cinematography, Jeremy Wanex, you know, editing and, v, and VFX work. So how did you 
once you got the words on the page, while you were writing it, were you envisioning how this was going to look on the screen, how you were going to bring this to life? And how, how did you go about approaching this and then working with Sean to develop that cohesive visual tonal bandwidth from beginning to end? So... So this this is the struggle when you are an actor and a director. Yes, it is. And and yes, it is. So the way that that so first of all, you, you got to get that script, you know, solid, ironclad, bulletproof. Then you got to storyboard like crazy. You got to do a lot of versions of that, and you've got to do things that are very purposeful. And so what I what I do is I use a previs program like somebody would use in VFX mm-hmm. on, Mar- on a Marvel movie or something. And I storyboard every single shot in the movie. Wow. I've got a floor plan where all the lighting is going. I've got blocking for all of the actors. I hand all this over to Sean Ayers, the cinematographer, and Audrey Hallworth, my production designer. I'm like, this is what we're doing. We have millions of meetings. They understand <laughs> where I'm coming from, all the tonal references, and then exactly what's going to be in frame and what's not, because this is a low-budget movie yeah. shot on a shoestring, so you got to make sure you're not dressing anything extra. So what that does, though, is it frees you up, because you know you can only focus on this one frame, so that's what you do. And then what I do is, is I shoot two camera because mm-hmm. I'm from a comedy background and I want to always be shooting the reaction. Right. And then I give that away and only focus on the acting and they just you know amazingly execute the storyboards. And then I just mess around with with the crew and the actors and try to keep the energy up and feed everybody and joke around and everything so the energy feels good. But at the end of the day, like all that prep work, we're just kind of executing that stuff and having fun with the performances. Mm-hmm. And then we've got to go to post forever. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's how I do it. Well, you know, let me ask you, because you're wearing multiple hats here, put aside the producing hat for a moment. Because the money hat and the overseeing hat, that gets in the way of the creative hat. So let's talk about the hat. Yeah. Of, you've got the writer's hat, the director's hat, the actor's hat. I mean, lead actor's hat. It's not just a casual walk-on or a cameo fill-in later in the film. Of course, you got a couple of those right. you're doing, too. Um, yeah, I watched. Yeah. I read the credits. I watched them. Um, and, you're also, <laughs> and you're also doing editing as well. So how oh, yeah. do you juggle the hats? When you're, how do you turn off the writer-director hat to be Hawk on screen? But then you also got the battle going into that scene of writer with precious words and director wanting to cut the writer's profession, uh, precious words. How do you balance that? And hand in hand with that, your editing hat, does that help you as a director because you're seeing your edits in your mind eye as you're directing? So it's going to cut down on superfluous shots. Absolutely. So, I mean, because of the editor hat, um, that, that's already influencing all the storyboards and the script. So I know there's just a lot of stuff that other people would include in, in a script and then shoot that I just would never use or like. Mm-hmm. 
And then, and then the, the key thing, two key things, one, surround yourself with amazing crew people who are passionate about the project because they will literally move mountains for you. And, and, you know, everyone has on, on my projects. Um, and two, lots and lots of amazing actors who are okay with being semi-improvisational. So if the dialogue changes, it's okay. However, they're totally fine with being locked in a shot and marked. And then three, my improv background, which I did years and years at the Upright Citizens Brigade and uh, Groundlings, Mm -hmm. one of the things you do when you're performing is you're basically writing and directing yourself in the scene on stage all the time. And after you do 10,000 hours of that, you have no problem popping in and out of character and, and then keeping your eye on the ball as well. And it just makes you a better actor and better storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I think honestly, working that muscle has really helped me multitask like that. You know, now while you're jumping in and out of character and keeping your eye on the ball, how is that influencing the performance of your scene partner? Well, you- so the thing, the thing that I like to do is, is I will, once, once we're rolling, someone else will call action. So I, I don't ever worry about that or cut. I don't deal with that. And because we're just executing these very specific shots, I know we're just doing this one thing here. So I'll say, guys, we're just executing this one push in for this line. So let's all just, just 100% focus on this. And then I will just take a couple deep breaths, disconnect from the logical side of my brain. And <laughs> I had this really funny acting exercise I would do to play Hawk that everybody called Pump It Up. So what I would do is I look like a cartoon character trying to uh, pump up a bike tire with one of those things. And I would just be like, <laughs> like that. And just for some reason, it was a thing that keyed me into playing Hawk. And I just turn into the guy and, and not really know what the heck is going on until the shot, till someone else called cut. And then we see what we have. <laughs> That's pretty oh much where God. we would go. <laughs> oh, my God. Insane, I know. <laughs> oh, my God. But that's the nuts and bolts of it. So, now... It's also a lot of fun. I just like playing make-believe, you know? Well, in a film like this, how can you not have fun? It shows on totally. screen that you were having fun because watching the film is fun. And you've got plenty of over-the-top blood and slaying happening. Oh, yeah. Um, with some very unique slaying methods that they're conventional <laughs> but have their own level of uniqueness to them. We don't want to give everything away. Um, right. But I was just in stitches laughing. I actually had to, oh, good. I had to go back and rewatch some stuff because I was laughing so hard I was missing some of the dialogue. Um, oh, that's fantastic. This brings me also to the music, your score. Robbie Elfman did your score. You've worked with him before. You know, this score is such an eclectic score. Um you've got oh, yeah. you so, have so nods to everything. You've got nods yeah. to everything in here. 
What were your conversations with Robbie like? What were you looking for uh, with this score? I hear nods to Ennio in here and the great spaghetti westerns. We've got nods to Tarantino. We've got nods to other... Even it sounds like a little Bernard little John Carpenter, little John Carpenter, even a little Bernard Herman, almost Hitchcockian. So I'm curious what <laughs> even some Beyonce. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> stop, stop, right? Stop. Okay, so the music, the okay. music is all about Robbie Elson and Ali Schneider, who played Rev. So, so the two of those guys work together. Um, Ari's not credited as, as co-composer on Elijah's Ashes, but he, you know, he really helped engineer that score, and, and he really engineered this score with Robbie. So, so I kept saying, like, I'm not 100% sure what influences should go where. I know I want John Carpenter in the scarier stuff. I know I want some Western stuff that kind of makes Hawk feel small towny and country uh, no and it makes, I want some... makes you think of clint eastwood right it, it makes right. it makes you think of hawk equating him to clint eastwood in those neo moments i i gotta exactly. tell you that's exactly where your mind goes sorry so Ari Go Schneider is a musical genius and so is robbie they grew up together they've been playing since they were 12 i mean it's it's insane that the, they're actually working on a giant musical right now that may get turned into a TV show. Wow. I mean, they they, they can do music um, in their sleep. It, it's not a matter of whether they can execute a thing or not. It's like, how many options do you want? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh. It's wild. I've never worked with people who understand music related to film in that way, and they... That's an extra layer on the film that I think just glosses it in the right homage way, mm-hmm. which is such a hard tone to catch. Yeah. And they nailed it 100%. Yeah, because you very easily, with this film, you could have gone in any one specific direction uh, with, a, with the musical motif. But I really, right. I love the fact that we have so many blend everything is blended so beautifully here and it really fits a hawk and his mentality and it captures the the essence of wait i'm getting pam's attention um <laughs> i'm throwing things at her um no worries uh, but uh but you've got music that speaks to ari's character of rev the multiplicity within hawk who really, I think he's schizophrenic at some point. OCDC or schizophrenic, totally. I, I, totally. you know. Um, and then the grounding of Jana's character of Theo. You, it all, everything speaks to something and everybody has a different quote-unquote genre that influences them. But it all works here. It all works, Ryan. I appreciate that so much. Our, our, Ari and Robbie, well, this is music to them years after all their sleepless nights working on this thing. <laughs> You know, and again, this goes back to to having that team of people who are inspired and really passionate about the project, and then you see it and hear it, Mm -hmm. you know? You know, I've got to ask you, how exciting is it, world premiere is going to be at Dances with Films? 
How ex- it's awesome. How exciting is that? World premiere of this film, midnight feature. You're going to open the fest at midnight with in the midnight feature section, and you're going to close the fest on September 5th in that same midnight slot. Um, especially, I'm in, humbled, grateful, amazed. You know, I mean, in the current situation, mm-hmm. to get to do something like that, just it's amazing. I'm so thankful. Uh, Dances with films. I mean, they almost programmed two other films that made Repatriation Elijah's Ashes, and we were close. And then, you know, I sent them early cuts of this, and they were like, "God, we love this movie. Is it still available?" And we were going to world premiere at Fanaspoa, which is this massive. Um, Latin American Horror Film Festival mm-hmm. is one of the largest horror fests in the world, but of course got delayed. So dances went online and they were like, are you still available? And I was like, heck yeah. And I wasn't thinking we'd get anything, but but then they came back with two screenings. I, I honestly, yeah. I'm over the moon. I, I'm still a little in shock. <laughs> well, having seen the film, this deserves two screenings because were this taking place in the Chinese complex in Hollywood, I guarantee you that your first screening would sell out and they would have to add another screening. If they were able to do it, they would have to add another screening because this film is so good. Word of mouth is really going to push this film. That is awesome. That is awesome. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, are you, have you gotten into any other festivals yet or has this whole... COVID situation kind of put a damper on that. Well, I mean, we were, we were pushing at about a hundred different ones, honestly, but so far we are going to be playing, uh, NOLA, NOLA Horror Fest. So Mm -hmm. New Orleans Horror Film Festival, which is a huge one. That's a really good one. Yeah, it's a great one, man. and and we're definitely going to be playing San Antonio International in October. They went online, um, and then I mean, honestly, for this kind of movie, like I don't want it to be out on the festival circuit forever. I want to get it out into people's homes before the holidays. You know, I f- I fully expect and anticipate you're going to get offers. To distribute this out of dances with films um, and quite honestly because there is a shortage of stuff in, in the distribution pipeline right now since everybody right. was shut down um, I think it, I've talked to so many producers and they've said yeah that they're looking to the indie world for indie filmmakers that have stuff ready to go that can get out there uh, that isn't right. the, the big Marvel stuff or Jurassic Park or anything of that ilk. But it's the indie world that is going to keep filling this pipeline and it needs content. I could actually see if somebody snapped it up right away, I could see a Halloween distribution possible. Especially with with so many people doing drive-in and online as methodology because so many theaters are still closed. And I feel like this is a perfect drive-in movie. Ah, the way drive-ins are... I grew up in the era of drive-ins. I loved drive-ins. Same. I loved drive-ins. And as they kept being wiped out, it just broke my heart. And to now see the resurgence and to have younger generations realize, even people in their 
20s and 30s who really never went to drive-ins and didn't really know what they were. Now they're discovering them and they're like, hey, this is pretty cool. Well, this is it so is fun. really cool. It's like what you saw on Happy Days with Richie and Potsy and Ralph at the drive-in, that's the kind of fun you have at a drive-in. And it really, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is the whole point of watching a movie. <laughs> that's just it. You know, so... I can, I so want to see, I have my fingers crossed and I really think you're going to get offers right out of DWF on this one because it, I appreciate it. I got a funny drive-in story. So it, it, it occurred to me that when I grew up in Zimbabwe, so I lived there for the first 10 years of my life. One of the ways that I saw movies as a kid was at this drive-in and I saw the Magnificent Seven with Steve McQueen and Joel oh. Brenner at the drive-in. And it just occurred to me how much it has really influenced this movie with the showdown and everything. Uh huh. This explains a lot about you, Ryan. That explains yeah. a lot about you and about the character of Hawk, right there. So. <laughs> yeah. Totally. <laughs> oh my. Well, but I'm... I mean, that's that's where that's my touchstone is all that kind of old reruns of westerns at, at uh, the drive-in and. South Central Africa, and then a bunch of 80s stuff, you know, when I moved here. Wow. Well, it shows in this film. It really does. Um, and I just can't recommend it highly enough. I Everybody, are you going to have ticket information on the film's web, website, hawkandrev.com? Will there be tickets? Yes, we'll have it there. Okay. Yeah, it'll be on uh, Dances with Films. Look for us on all the different social media uh, platforms, uh, you look me up too. I'll, I'll be posting it everywhere. Yeah, if, I kind of, kind of uh, held off last week, just sort of letting it all brew, and then basically from today onwards, I'm just going to be uh, publicizing the heck out of it. And for all of for all of my listeners and readers, I've already tagged um, Hawk and Rev with their handle on Twitter and Facebook. So if you go if you follow me, you can just go right to my pages, and the link is right in there in my tease for today's show. So that'll take you right to hawkandrev.com you know, and their respective social media platforms. So awesome. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. Ryan, I really appreciate it. this has been fabulous. And now, unfortunately, I have to bid you adieu uh, to welcome... Emmy nominee Nina Erb uh, <laughs> to talk about her, amazing to talk about her <laughs> so Emmy awesome. nomination. So you're her opening act. You've done well. Um, and seriously, you've got to let me know how the DWF reception is. You've got my email, so I will. For let sure. me know. Thank you so much, Debbie Ryan. Thank you, and you have to come back on the show again. I will do it for sure. Let's do it. Absolutely, Ryan. Thank you. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Ryan Barton Grimley talking about Hawk and Rev Vampire Slayers. World premiere, August 28th, Dances with Films. And now, huge welcome and congratulations to Emmy-nominated Nina Erb. Welcome, Nina. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is a pleasure to have you. So what do you think the chances are you're going to be able to, to have matching bookends in your house? 
after the Emmys. <laughs> that would be amazing. But, you know, right now I'm just enjoying the ride. <laughs> what is this? You, you're the, this isn't your first time at the rodeo. Uh, you've been there before. You have one Emmy already. Um, of course, mm-hmm. one can never have too many. Uh, and <laughs> here you are. But this time you're actually not. You won for Project Greenlight. Uh, yep. which was for Unstructured Reality Program. You're now nominated mm-hmm. for an Emmy for Outstanding Single Camera Picture Editing for a Comedy. Big difference between a comedy series and an unstructured reality program. <laughs> yes, there is. <laughs> uh, you know, big, big, yeah. how do you go about, uh, with this Emmy process, um, you have to submit a particular episode. So you it falls to you and I guess the producers to look at the body of work for the season to figure out what episode to submit. Um, the Your submitted episode was low-key trying, uh, which I found that episode to have a great balance between comedy and drama as we are watching our, our two main characters the our besties go back and forth um, with displeasure with their relationship, happiness about connecting, happiness about being friends, but not happy about not being connected for so long. And you find a perfect balance. So I think this was a great episode to submit. But I'm curious, how do you even, before we get into your editing process, how do you even, how do you determine what to submit for consideration? Mm, yeah, that's, that's, it's always tricky, you know, um, for Project Greenlight, uh, I wasn't even aware that the studio was submitted. <laughs> so that was a complete surprise. <laughs> um, but uh, for Insecure, uh, I, you know, when HBO reached out and said, which one do you want to submit? I, I picked Loki Trying because it was, I just loved putting that together so much. You know, um, I, I really enjoyed the dailies. And, you know, Carrie Washington brought so much to the directing and just she just kind of infused every single shot with symbolism. And, you know, the performances she got were so amazing. I, I, it was a no brainer. I, I just wanted to do that one. So <laughs> I told them they agreed. And here we are. <laughs> and and here we are in this day and age. You've got female directed, directed by a woman of color, female editor main leads are females, women of color. I mean, this is this show and this particular moment is really the embodiment of everything that's happening right now in the world, you know, from the socio-political standpoint uh in the world. Yeah. And it yeah, it, yeah. it speaks volumes, but it also speaks volumes about how damn talented women are. Yeah, it does, right? I mean, it's it's so nice. <laughs> you know, we've spent our careers kind of trying to prove that we're we're just as good or, or good enough, and it's just so nice to be able to collaborate with all these other incredibly talented and powerful women of color, and you know, it, and to have it be so well received, it's incredible. You know, how do you approach editing? Here you are. You joined Insecure in what the third season? Yes where it already had a rhythm and look and, and tone defined. 
So when you came on to the series, was it were they looking for a change of a tonal change of some sort or a particular stamp they wanted you to bring to the to the proceedings? Um they well nothing was specified really. It was um you know, I had a good meeting with them and I was so thrilled because they had reached out to me uh, sometime around season two to see if I was available. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't. I was on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend at the time. So I was kind of the entire year, I was like, please call me back, please call me back, please call me back. <laughs> and they called me back. Because <laughs> I've been a fan of the show since, like, day one because of the location it was set in. And, and also that it was, you know, you don't have a lot of shows that, really show the relationship and, you know, two women of color kind of navigating their lives and careers in the city. And it's, it's it was just a unique thing that I really um, connected to. Um, and so I was super excited to be, you know, asked for the meeting. And I think the meeting went well and they hired me. And I studied the look and the tone and the pacing and, and you know, how they kind of used their signature moments. And I kind of also brought a little bit of what I do to it and um, I think it's worked out okay. <laughs> you got an Emmy nomination out of it so I'd say it worked out okay. You know what would what, <laughs> what would you call what is it that you think you brought to to this series to these productions? Um, well I um, you know I like to say that representation is is important. And for me, um, well, I'm not African-American. I, I am a woman of color. And, you know, South L.A. is the first area that my family and I um, settled in when we immigrated to the U.S. And so I grew up in that neighborhood. The community is very special to me. You know, I, I'm always going to look back fondly at the at the people that kind of embraced us as mm-hmm. we're this foreign, you know, family trying to start a new life in this country. So, so, you know, I've always had a fondness for that area and the community. And so to be able to kind of, you know, shine a, a positive and beautiful light on that area and the people, that's always been really important to me. Mm-hmm. So I think that has a lot of, um, you know, just being able to put that love into it and also to come at it from the standpoint of a woman of color, because I am a woman of color and, you know, it, it's looking back on the things that I've experienced as I was, you know, kind of trying to find my way in my career and trying to figure out like, okay, is this the right guy that I'm dating? Like what's happening here? You know, <laughs> I mean, all those things you can kind of connect to and it's, you know, my interpretation of it is going to be different than that of a, a guy. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of what I brought to it, you know, the female point of view. You know, when you're at editing- someone who's, no, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, <laughs> oh, and and just that some you know I'm I'm someone who is from that area, so I I think have an intimate knowledge of the neighborhood. I was going to say that's something I I particularly like when there are projects set in certain areas. I just watched a film the other day. It's set in Philadelphia in areas that I know intimately. That's where I'm from, uh, and I know them. And the director, the editor, so they are they're cutting and they're showcasing some very interesting parts that somebody else may not pick up on, may not understand. And I always love seeing it when somebody is there to elevate the home, their roots on screen. Um, 
Yeah. So I'm I'm thrilled that this gives you the opportunity to do that, and you do it with such love. And something that's that I always have have been wondered about with editors, and I'm always struck by, is how you find that balance. I mean, this is supposed to be a comedy, but yes. there are a lot of tears as well in this series <laughs> and in this episode. Um, you know, it this particular episode leaves on a very sad note. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm. How do you find that balance? Do you go, is there a mantra that says go more for the laughs or go more for the tears? Or is it left to your discretion? Or is the director saying, no, I want this? Well, for this particular episode, um, you know, Carrie Washington was very specific with what she wanted to get across. Um she had this idea of infusing it with symbolism of two. And my interpretation of that is like, okay, well, kind of start the episode with a question, right? With Issa and Lawrence, like, where do they go from here after they spend the night together? Do they try to rekindle that romance? Do they go their separate ways? Um, and we kind of end the episode in a similar kind of question, only, you know, at the end it's with Molly and mm-hmm. Issa, you know, is their relationship, you know, is their friendship worth fighting for or have they outgrown each other and it's time to part ways? It's like similar questions about like what happens when you have, you know, two people and one of them may or may not be there anymore. So I kind of um, use that to balance kind of the, the comedy and the drama of it because, mm-hmm. you know, life is not just full of laughs or full of tears, right? It's, it's always always shifting, always changing. And so a lot of the scenes, you know, the tone might shift pretty quickly from laughs to awkwardness to maybe more laughs to like, you know, a total kick in the gut, like in the end mm-hmm. when Issa gets that text, the accidental text from Molly. <laughs> like, And that's when she realized, oh, okay, maybe this is not going to work out. Like Molly really has to try to make it work, to make this friendship work. So, you know, a lot of that is in the editing because you want to make sure that the party atmosphere is really high. The energy is high. So they're having a great time. And so then when the text is received, it really feels like a kick in the gut. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, like, make sure we sat in that for a moment so we can see her take it in, see how painful it is, and, you know, then have her fire it back at Molly get that awkwardness and then have her storm out. So all of that was all in pacing and understanding like, you know, what makes a moment comedic mm. and what kind of pacing makes it dramatic. Um, and, and, you know, all the little building blocks that you have to kind of put in there to make it all work. You know, how much of this falls to what you feel in your gut when you're watching the dailies and you're putting and you're assembling something, how much of this falls to your own gut? as to what is striking you in the moment that you're watching a scene? All of it. All of it. I I rely on my gut for pretty much everything. Um, When I'm watching dailies, if something's making me laugh, like, super hard, I will put that aside. If it's something that's going to make me cry, like at the end, you know, when Issa's holding back the tears, Mm Mm-hmm. And she's kind of realizing that, okay, maybe we have outgrown one another and she turns to leave. Like, when I saw that take, I just, like, 
and I don't get emotional really, you know, on the outside <laughs> when I'm watching daily. <laughs> like I listen to my gut and know what's funny, will know what's sad. But when I saw that, I got a little emotional. I was like, whoa, this is really powerful. Like I got to put that one aside. And every single performance was, was phenomenal. She was very emotional in all of them, but there was something about that particular one that I used that just got me. And, you know, when I screened it for other people in the office, they were all just like, you know, they were all kind of emotional with it too. So I, I, I knew that I had picked the right one, but yeah, yeah it, it's all in my gut. <laughs> <laughs> you got, you get that. That's your barometer. Your gut, it has a good barometer. Let me tell you, Nina. <laughs> Yeah, you know, do do you sit there and look at the dailies, because this is it is a single camera operation, so you've got dailies coming in with coverage shots from from different angles, um, where they'll do breakdown, they'll set up again. Do you ever have an embarrassment of riches, where you you're sitting there and you literally do not know which way to go? All the time, all the time. I mean, the cast is so talented that it's, you know, you have so many different directions to go in, right? And so oftentimes what I'll do is I'll have different versions of the same scene to see like, okay, what would happen if I, instead of starting on this wide shot, what happens if I start in on a close shot? You know, what happens if I use this tape versus the other one? Um, so for every scene, I'll, you know, probably cut like three or four versions using different performances, different ways to get in and out of it. Um, Sometimes it'll be done from different person's point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then what I do the next day is I, I come in here with fresh eyes and I just look at them all together. And there's always one that's going to jump out at you and say, okay, and you're like, yep, that's the one. Or sometimes, you know, you'll say, mm, I like the, the front end of this one, but the back end of that one. So um, that's kind of my uh, very labor intensive method. But, you know, I really don't know how to work any other way. I, I need to see like, how everything looks, you know, if you mm-hmm. try different, different takes and whatnot. So I, I, it's my love of experimentation, exploration. That's kind of just how I do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're very visual. That could be why you're an yeah. editor. Uh, <laughs> do, do you ever get ben- the benefit of, uh, do you get the script in advance or do you just get oh, the, yeah. or, mm-hmm. how far in advance Will you have scripts? Because with a series, supposedly, you know, everything is piggybacking on everything else with the storylines. So that sometimes that will, and you've got to plan out certain beats, editing beats, um, through the different episodes. So I'm just curious how early you get all the scripts and you can start, and do you start planning in advance or do you just wait until you actually see those dailies? come in for the, the episode um you know it depends on the show and how they run it um some shows like to have all the scripts done ahead of time and they'll have table reads and tone meetings before they even start shooting the first episode and so those are you know that's like the ideal situation because you get the full picture um and then there's other shows where you'll have maybe like you'll get two scripts ahead of schedule and so it's it's kind of a matter of like you know, remembering what you read, you know, and then kind of guessing a little bit of what's going to go down the line. And oftentimes, you know, if I'm just not seeing where it's going to go later, maybe an episode or two episodes later, I'll just talk to the producers and the writers and say, hey, where are you seeing this, you know, headed? Like, 
So here's what I'm thinking of using. Um, is that going to you know work with the, in the direction you want to go in? Um, so it's uh, you know I I'm not shy about talking to the producers <laughs> about things like that because I think it's important to make sure that the right seeds are planted. And and of course, because so many shows, they have different different people, different directors coming in and out. Uh, different cinematographers can come in and out. Different editors can come in and out. So I I know for continuity purposes, because I know, and I'm sure you've seen this too with certain shows, where you've got the back end changing out, and then the tone totally changes, or what was being stressed in in one episode is no longer being stressed and the audience are sitting there going, well, what happened? It's, it feels like a really badly written episode of General Hospital. Um, so, so I, 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 I love that you have, you're not afraid to say, hey, where is this going? Yeah, I mean, I'm usually a little more tactful than that. I'm, you know, I, I kind of say, um, Oh, so hey, here's uh, here's my concern. Like, how are, what are you picturing here? And, you know, I try to get them to tell me their vision. And um, and sometimes, you know, I mean, actually, not sometimes. Most of the time, I'm reading and paying more attention to the screen direction that the writers write in between mm-hmm. the lines of dialogue. Um, so, because that's going to inform a lot of my choices for performance, and also it tells me what's in their head when they're kind of writing this episode together. So. Um, you know, that's extremely helpful. Um, and, and of course, if you get a scene where none of the performances are remotely close to what was written uh, in terms of tone, then, uh, you know, you do have to raise a little red flag and say, okay, here's my, you know, here's what's happening. Um, I'm going to try and make it work by doing this, this, and this, but I just want to let you know that we might need a pickup or something. <laughs> But fortunately, that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever, are you ever in a situation, maybe not with Insecure, but maybe on another project, where I know some screenwriters, they give no interlineation direction, directives. They just write dialogue. They don't give any directives. Some have the idea, well, they'll leave it to the, to the director to come up with something uh, and, or, and to determine a tone. Do you ever have a situation like that where you don't have any of those quote-unquote notes and you're just sitting there, okay, here's the dialogue on the page, here's what I'm looking at, what do they want? Um, Every once in a while you do come across that. Um, And usually, again, it's just, um, you know, I just make sure I have communication with the director if the writer's leaving it up to the director to come up with the tone. Um, and if it's, you know, like a TV series, generally the writers and the show producers, um, the showrunners, executive producers, they'll have a pretty good idea. So even if the writer that's assigned to the episode doesn't really put all those screen direction notes in there, um, I can approach them and discuss it. And, you know, fortunately, most of the shows out there now are <laughs> doing tone meetings. So you kind of have an idea what, where their head's at. Mm-hmm. Of course, things might change, you know, when you get into the edit and you kind of go, mm, okay, yeah, this is what we had in mind, but it's probably not coming across the way that we want because mm-hmm. of X, Y, and Z. And so then it's just a matter of being able to pivot and really understanding what material you have to work with so that you can pivot in the right direction. Mm-hmm. How long does, an, does a normal edit of a show take for you, such as this episode, Low-Key Trying of Insecure? 
How much time do you have to get your edit done in the various stages? Um, we usually, sorry. No, I was just going to say in the um, various stages. Like, so, um, Typically they'll shoot uh, about seven days. Uh, certain episodes, depending on the scope of it, might be six days or eight days. And um, for this particular one, I believe we had seven days. And I had three days after the last day of shooting to put my editor's cut together. Oh, my. But I'm always... Yeah, it's fast. <laughs> oh, my. Yes. <laughs> wow. It was really fast. And actually, you know, um, because of Carrie's schedule, she had to come in uh, a day earlier. Uh, so I actually had one less day, and I ended up cutting uh, one of the scenes in front of her, which I thought was kind of interesting. I've never done that before. <laughs> Does that make? Are you nervous doing that with the director standing there over your shoulder? Um, not. I mean, yes and no. You know, she was she was great. Like the, I have my other day set up so that no one's behind me. Um, I have it set up so it's kind of like a living room where, like, you know, I can face them as they're watching the TV or the client monitor. Um, so it kind of, it was interesting. It was kind of like we're chatting and I'm kind of cutting and she's, you know, every once in a while checking her email. And, and she was great. She didn't mind that I was just working and, and I didn't, I'm, you know, I'm very open. Like, you know, if you want to come and hang out, come and hang out. You know, as long as you don't care that I'm not talking to you every single second of the day because I'm working, then that's cool. Um, yeah, and she was, we were very comfortable around one another. Now, this Emmy nomination for Low Key Trying is shared with Lenarian Hubbard. Now, yes. do you guys, when you co edit, do you bounce back and forth? How does that process work for you? Um, well, Lenarian is my assistant editor, and I've been mentoring her for the last few years. Um, and this season, I wanted to make sure she got an opportunity to edit. Mm-hmm. And so for all of my episodes, um, I always tell her, like, if there's something that, you know, that you're just dying to cut, grab the scene and let me know, you know. And um, when you're done, we'll take a look at it and see, you know, if there's anything else that needs to be done with it before I put it in the episode. Um, and sometimes it won't be quite ready for the episode. Um, and we'll just keep working on that. But, you know, I'm always cutting alongside her. So whatever she's cutting, I'm still cutting so that. One, I know the material, and mm-hmm. I can um, give her better notes to help help her shape the scene. And two, um, because she still has to juggle um, her assistant duties, I don't want to put the pressure on her if she just simply can't uh, finish a scene on time. Mm-hmm. She's never disappointed me, believe me. Like, she's always been able to do it, so that was never an issue. Um, but it's just a backup plan that I have to be coming alongside them um, always. Uh, but, yeah, she's she's amazing. She's amazing, and she's definitely ready to edit, and I'm just so happy that I can share this with her. Well, you know, here you are mentoring Lunarian. Who mentored you as you were coming up as an editor? Who was the one who uh, who showed you the care and attention that, that, you're, that you showed a Lunarian? Mm, um, there were so many. Uh, you know, ironically, it was never, it wasn't a lot of people that I worked with directly, you know, because uh, I, I wasn't an assistant for very long. But um, there were different editors that I've met throughout my career 
who have, you know, kind of became friends and stepped into the mentor role. Uh, one of them is Steve Rash, uh, who is also nominated this year in the same category for Curb Your Enthusiasm. Um, so that was kind of a, 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 honestly, like I couldn't even believe it. Like I never thought that'd be, you know, nominated in the same category as my oh. mentor, and, and here I am. <laughs> so it's been pretty amazing, and he's been just incredible, like always offering me advice that's guided me, you know, the last decade easily. Do you see yourself jumping into big feature films anytime soon, or do you like doing the episodic? Mm, I just like powerful stories, um, but I would love to do a feature film. You know, um, it's a little more, kind of a bigger canvas for you to tell a story. You know, you're not so limited to a certain time frame. So I, I think I'd like to try something like that. So now, where, how is this going to work for finding out if you, when you've won your Emmy? Where are they send, going to be doing pre-recorded Zooms with you if the Zoom system is working and not crashed like it did today? Uh, <laughs> I know, right? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. Um, I think... I think my night is going to be uh, broadcast on FXX, mm-hmm. but I, they haven't told us if we're supposed to be on Zoom waiting for it or if we're or doing or, or if or, I can just be on my couch and sweats eating pizza. I don't know. Or or a fake pre-record. Oh my God, you like me? You really like me? Thank you so much. Um, my mind exactly. my mind reels at the possibilities of what they're going to do to all of you. Yeah, I know. I think I think I'd go with with a fake pre-record and sit at home on the couch in sweats eating pizza. I like that. Yeah, I I think that's a good one. I think that sounds like the perfect plan. Oh my! (laughs) I know. I'm glad I didn't have to buy a dress. (laughs) Okay, well that's that's always a plus, and you don't have to wear shoes. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, this is a plus. So after kind of sort of being at home and everybody's put on their their COVID-19 during COVID-19 you, you, you don't have to you don't have to upset yourself shopping yes. so exactly that that's a good thing so now what is next for you Nina um keep working on Insecure what's happening for you from an editing standpoint in this really insane weird time Mm. Um, well, I'm uh, signed to go to a new show, Lena Dunham's show called Generation, uh, for HBO Max. And, um, you know, after that, we'll see what happens. Uh, I believe Insecure might be starting right after that. Um, but, you know, there's with COVID, it's so hard to tell. Nobody so knows. I'm not sure if it's definitely going to start or if it's going to be pushed down the line. But. Oh. Oh. You know, regardless, I hope I hope to be collaborating with Ethan Ray. Oh well, he's, just, he's brilliant. Well, you're brilliant too, um, and <laughs> a very well deserved Emmy nomination. Nina, this has been so fabulous getting to talk to you uh, today about your editing process, particularly with this story and what and what you you bring to it from your heart, from your gut. Um, and I will, I'm crossing my fingers for you over rash. I got to tell you, 
my fingers are <laughs> my fingers are crossed for you to get that that little golden statuette. You need matching bookends. What can I say? Right. Sym- symmetry <laughs> counts. <laughs> and this episode, it's about twos. Questions, yep. twos, ends with twos. This would make a number two Emmy. So who knows? Oh. I love it. <laughs> Nina, thank you. And I hope I get to talk to you again in the future. This has been a joy. I love that. Thank you, thank you so, so much. much. For having me. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Nina Erb, Emmy nominated for Outstanding Single Camera Picture Editing for Comedy Series. Uh, We'll cross our fingers for Nina when the Emmys are announced later on in September. Well, that is all the time we have today. Huge, huge thanks to Ryan and to Nina. Check out Insecure on HBO. Get your ticket. Dances with Films. And watch Hawk and Rev Vampire Slayers. You will not be sorry. And next week, we are jam-packed again with another Dances with Film filmmaker. uh, Plus somebody else that I'm not saying yet. So, until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 